One of the lasting legacies of the 20th century is environmentalism. But I don't mean the green kind that gave us Earth Day. I'm talking about the whole nature versus nurture debate. So on the nature side, uh, you have uh, people who believe in a kind of determinism based on biology or genetics. And on the nurture side or the environmental side, hence environmentalism, you have people who believe that it doesn't matter uh, what the seed is, as long as you plant it in good soil, it will, it will bring forth good fruit. I think you can see the fallacy in either, in either case. If you plant you know, a pumpkin seed in good soil and expect a pear tree, you're not going to get it. And if you plant a pear seed in bad soil, uh, you're not going to get anything at all. So there's, there's obviously something to be said for both points of view. And, this was humorously played out in that movie from 1983 that is actually an old movie now, Trading Places, if you ever saw that with Eddie Murphy. Very funny movie, um, and that was the whole premise of that, of that, of that film. Um, so for most of the 20th century, at least until the end of World War II, the naturalists, those who believed in kind of a biological determinism, they gained some real headway. And for instance, laws were passed that uh, passed, and we look back at the, on them with a certain horror, I think, but laws were passed to sterilize idiots and others who were deemed by the state to be undesirable. Now, if that sounds like Nazi Germany, you're, you're not wrong, but it also unfortunately sounds a lot like Arizona and California and Connecticut and Delaware and Georgia and Idaho and lots of other states. And another movie that, was, that is worth seeing, Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, which was about the Nuremberg trials at the end of World War II, where the Allies put on, on trial Nazi war criminals. Um, the, the movie itself is about the judges, the Nazi judges who were put on trial. Uh, and for, the per for the perversion of law, frankly. But if you watch that movie, the defense that is made for the Nazi judges comes out of the American law books. The laws that were on the books in this country were the same laws that were on the books in Nazi Germany. Forced sterilization continued in Oregon until 1981. And it wasn't until 2002 that the state apologized to its victims. So eventually, however, the environmentalists won out. Human beings, they decided, or it was decided, could be molded and shaped, nurtured by their environment. And that the determination, the determinism of genes and heredity didn't have to rule supreme. And this has been the rationale for every social welfare program since the 1960s, from Johnson's Great Society and the War on Poverty to today's calls for universal pre-K. The environment is what matters. Now, both naturalist and environmentalist believe that human nature is changeable. That human nature is changeable. But Paul has been arguing all these weeks through his, in his letter to the Romans, that human nature cannot change. It is not changeable, unless it is Christ Jesus who affects the change. Paul writes, so then, brothers and sisters, we are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So like both the naturalist and the environmentalist, Paul wants things to change. Like the naturalist, Paul believes in the mortification of the flesh, the cutting of the flesh, the putting to death of the flesh. He writes, we need to put to death the deeds of our bodies. But like the environmentalist, Paul knows that the creation was subjected to fertility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, it's this awful environment that we've inherited from Adam that is to blame for the futility and the frustration we face in life. Our personalities, our relationships, 
and work are twisted and warped by the environment. Because of Eve's treachery and Adam's disobedience, God cursed the work he gave the human race to do, and hence the futility and the vanity of the whole human project to date. But there is a hope to be found, not in social engineering of the environment, nor in the surgical engineering of the body, but in the children of God. That's where Paul says we are to find our hope. Paul writes, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. In other words, creation is waiting for Adam. And by Adam here, I mean all of us, mankind, the whole human race, to do its job. Creation is waiting for Adam to do its job faithfully. But that day will never come because Adam, and again, I hear, here I mean all of us, we are rebels. We are born unfaithful from the very first breath we take. And so that day of faithful fulfillment will not come. Take a step back for a moment and imagine that I am describing the, the creation as a glorious tapestry hanging on the walls of the cloisters. And you see this painting, this, this tapestry, and you look at it and you say, God, what wonderful things you have made. Look at your handiwork. Only, I think, a fool at this point would say there's no such thing as God looking at the majesty of creation, and yet plenty of people deny that there is a God. But there's a hole in this tapestry, in the middle of it, and you wonder why. So you look at the placard to the right of it, and the museum curator has helpfully put something up there for you to understand. And it says, unfinished work by Adam, circa 4004 BC. Now why is this tapestry unfinished. Because the centerpiece of the whole tapestry, man, this child of God, refuses to sit for his portrait. He is too vain. Having decided for himself what looks good and what looks evil, he is forever putting his face on, yet he is never ready for his close-up. Meanwhile, all of creation waits with eager longing for Adam to show up. Now, it's worse than that. It's worse than just waiting around for a fussy actor to perform. According to Paul, creation suffers from its enslavement to decay, and it also suffers pain, not unlike the pain of labor and childbirth. Now, what Paul is talking about here is not just old age, sickness, and death. I went to the doctor on Friday, and, you know, after 50, they start doing a lot more tests, right, and a lot more shots, so I get the shingles shot. And the doctor, Dr. Coughlin, says, oh, this might, this might make you feel a little sick. I'm like, okay, whatever. I couldn't get out of bed all day yesterday. <laughs> I mean, talk about age, sickness, and decay, right? And, and so, so, you know, if we're just trying to explain why things run their course the way they do, you know, why do we get old? Why does, you know, what's the cycle of life? We could set aside Paul and his gospel and be content with what's called natural religion. And, and natural religion is just as it sounds. It basically says things must follow their course from birth to life and death and then repeat the cycle. And it's all guided by some kind of unseen soul of the universe. And you hear people talk about the universe in this way. And when they do, they're consciously or not showing themselves to be adherents of this natural, this natural religion. Anybody, anytime you've ever heard anybody say death is a part of life, that's natural religion. Now, Paul says the exact opposite. Paul is deeply offended by death. He's offended by death. He, he, he knows that death is, is a curse. 
but he thinks there's something that can be done about it. He writes, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So for Paul, death is not natural. It's not part of the cycle of life. The explanation for death is not the universe, but death is a curse meted out by God to crush the rebellion led by his disobedient children. Children, which is all of us who have lost their rights as their father's children and lost their rights to, their, to be heirs to their father's kingdom which means that the human race will be forever trying to govern something that does not want to cooperate with it and will not allow a pretender to the throne to govern it. The creation resents us. No amount of engineering, social or surgical, can put things right. But there is hope. There is hope in the children of God, and that is Paul's message for today. There is hope in the Son of God in particular. If creation is waiting in vain for Adam to do his job, which is to rule creation faithfully, equitably, and with justice, and along with his wife, to populate the earth with like-minded souls, not to raise children as savages, but to raise them in the knowledge and the love of God, then creation took a deep sigh of relief when Jesus Christ was born. The long wait was over. Or, as Winston Churchill might have put it, it was the end of the beginning. Christ's first coming is the beginning of the end of this curse. It's the beginning of weaving in the hole in that tapestry. Christ inaugurates the day when all creation is set free from futility. Christ's resurrection means that a redeeming force and people are now at work in history. Let me say that again. It's not just a force, some invisible thing. It's a people too. It's the, it's the church, it's Christians, it's believers who are now at work in history. And Christ's people are set free. We are unleashed to be effective in all aspects of life, including governance. Believers are made fit both to rule themselves and to exercise the dominion over the earth that was originally Adam's. So we Christians have Adam's unfinished work to do. And that means there can be no retreating to the monastery and shutting ourselves off from the world. There can be no burying our talents in the ground or hiding our light under a bushel. Yes, there is a groaning. There is a groaning in the creation and in the hearts of our own souls born of pain and resentment. But Paul says these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul speaks of the first fruits that we get to experience now here while we still live this earthly life. One of those first fruits is that we get to call God our Father again. I can't stress that enough because there's a ridiculous notion out there that God just loves everybody and accepts everybody and that just by being born you somehow deserve his love and that is not true. You are cut off from God without Jesus Christ. So now we get to call God our Father again while we await for the adoption as God's children to take full effect. And that is why there is hope for us. Paul concludes with these words, For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? There's an old saying that you can't have your cake and eat it too. Paul is saying you can't hope and have your fulfillment too. 
This life is not the time for fulfillment. This life is the time for hope and action. The power of Christ's resurrection is at work in us because we are a resurrection people. If we're going to finish Adam's job, then there is certainly work for us to do. And that means that there is a role for the Christian naturalist and for the Christian environmentalist, but not in the way that the world uses those terms. We must preach that human nature must change if it is to have any hope of being God's friend, that that rebellion in us must be put down, that each each one of us needs to take an aggressive stand against sin in our own lives or else we will make God our enemy. Paul has told us again and again that we must give no quarter to personal sin. or sin in the life of the church. Here's the time for the knife. Here's the time for the surgical remedy. We need to suffocate sin, drown sin, squeeze the life out of it. Paul says, Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. But we must also change the environment. If we cannot allow sin to rule in our hearts, then we certainly cannot allow sin to rule over us. And so Christians, once again, must become a political people. I'm not talking here about elections per se and campaigning. I'm talking about the root of that word, polis. We need to become a people again. Cross and crown go together. Governance is possible because of the resurrection. Jesus has told us to make disciples of all nations, which is a political statement as much as it is a theological one. It means teaching the nations how to govern themselves in accordance with all that Jesus has taught us. This is not a time to retreat to the monastery or to hide in the church. This is a time to go forth and make disciples of all nations. And if we don't do that, if the church does not do this, the church will not survive. If you take seriously all of this, you will realize how far the church has done the exact opposite of Jesus' command in recent decades. The church has let the world disciple the church rather than the other way around. Paul writes, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The glory isn't just for the life to come. There is a share of this glory that we must contend for in the here and now. But there will be opposition Paul guarantees it. He knows that there is no neutrality. We are all born enemies of God, and by his grace, some of us are converted and switch sides. But any time a Christian steps out of the safe space of personal piety to press the claim God has on the whole human race, he will get pushback. Such is the risk of being a Christian. Such is the risk of being a monotheist. Isaiah speaks about that in today's reading. Is there any other God? No, there isn't. And you cannot act like there is, and you cannot pretend like there is, and you cannot let your friends think that there is. There is no other God but God. And Paul will have more to tell us about that pushback and persecution next week. Amen.